Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our walk through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're starting right where we left off last week. And so we have to remember that over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus is instituting a new kingdom. And basically he's saying, the people that live in my kingdom, the people that are part of this new kingdom, this is who they are. In the first few weeks, we talked about the Beatitudes and the character of the people who were going to be part of this kingdom. And then we talked about their impact with salt and light. And last week about Jesus saying, how do they relate to the law? And as you get to the end of that, as you get to the end of the message from last week, and it was a verse I mentioned, but we didn't focus a lot on, Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now think about this for a minute. The scribes and the Pharisees were considered the people that had everything figured out. The Pharisees, in fact, had taken the laws of God and they had written down exactly how to follow all of the laws of God to the point where they thought they could keep them perfectly. You remember Paul when he is um, listing off his list of accomplishments and then at the end of that he says, and now because of Christ I consider all of that rubbish? Do you remember that list? And then that list is Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the right tribe and all that. And he says, Pharisee of Pharisees. And then he says, and according to the law, anybody remember what he wrote after that? Blameless. Innocent. Now, can you imagine somebody today go, as far as it goes with following God's law, I'm perfect. Like, we wouldn't say that, but the Pharisees thought they had it figured out. And so when Jesus says to the people around, they knew that. When he says, you've got to have a righteousness that is better than those that say they're blameless, he is raising the bar for them. It would be like if you said, hey, I want to join the church basketball league team. We don't currently have one of those at the moment. But if we did and you said, I want to join the church basketball league team. And we say, listen, you can try out. But in order to be on our team, you're going to have to be better than Michael Jordan. To make our team, you got to be better than LeBron. Like that's just the way it is. Now, I mean, some of you might be able to pass that test. I would not. All right. Well, that's why they felt when they said, hey, if you're going to be righteous, if you're if Jesus is like you're going to be part of this kingdom that I'm bringing, you've got to have a righteousness that supersedes, goes over those of the Pharisees. And so what he's going to do now is that he is going to, in these next few verses, and we're going to hit the high points of these. It's several verses from uh, in chapter 5 that goes over several subjects. We're going to hit the high points of the principles what he's going to talk about. But he says basically, listen, this is what I mean. The Pharisees teach this. This is what is really the case. Scholars call this the antithesis section because he takes a truth or a thesis that the Pharisees are teaching and he brings a opposite understanding to it. There's a pattern here. He'll say you heard about in the Old, and he'll quote an Old Testament passage or a saying that the Pharisees would use from the Old Testament. Then he would cite a popular understanding that they have it, and then he would give them an authoritative statement about what he means. He raises the bar. 
He's speaking in an environment where people had tried to take every law of God and turn it into an external rule that they could follow. It's a temptation for God's people at all times to say, how can I make a list of things that I must do in order to be okay with God? And if I can check off that list, then I'm good. When I was growing up in the youth group, we had our list of things that were okay for people in the youth group to do and not okay for people in the youth group to do. And we knew what those were. And if we could check those off, well, I didn't go out partying this weekend. That's good. I'm good. I'm at church. That's important. I'm doing those. And I'm not saying that any of those, I'm not trying to, to, to validate things that are evil or, or um, denigrate things that are not. But you know what I mean? Like a checklist of, hey, these are things that I can do. And the Pharisees had said, here's your checklist, given it to the people and said, just do this. And the people thought it was burdensome even from the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to take it and say, it's actually more. He's going to pick six that the Pharisees would have thought they had no problem with. He's going to talk about murder and adultery and divorce and not breaking oaths and loving their neighbor and not taking more than an eye for an eye. And in the midst of all that, the Pharisees, if they just heard Jesus say, hey, I'm going to talk to you about what it means to murder and commit adultery and what divorce looks like and oaths, they would have all said, man, we are good on those. In a similar way, if I came in here today and said, I'm going to preach an entire sermon on how not to murder somebody, most of you would think, I think I got that one down. I think I'm all right. But in the midst of all of this teaching, there are four principles that come out that show what it means to be a member of the kingdom of God, and then one big truth at the end of it. So we're going to dive in today to those four principles from the word of God, and then the big truth that comes out of it, starting with this principle, that people in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ, this new kingdom he brings, are people that treat other people with dignity. They recognize the dignity of every single human being. And he does that by starting with an understanding about murder, which sounds strange. Verse 21 says this. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. So there's the, you have heard it said to the ancestors, don't murder. There is the decree from the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Moses said that. Pharisees said that. He says, but I tell you, but I say to you, but my command is... Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. So he says here, listen, you've heard it said, don't murder. The the word murder, by the way, is a better interpretation of the Old Testament word that's used in the Ten Commandments instead of kill. Because the word there means, like intent, it means means premeditation, it means an anger acting in a way. He says, you've heard it said that way, and most of you probably think, I'm good there. But the truth is, he says, if you have harbored anger in your heart towards a fellow human being, you've committed murder already. Now, a couple of quick things about that. 
Scripture is very clear that anger is a natural emotion that comes with being human. And so this is not saying that all anger at all times is bad. In fact, there's a scripture verse that says, be angry and sin not. Jesus was angry in the temple when he turned over tables. But in the original language, what it says here is basically this. You, if you are continually angry in your heart, it's a word that shows continuous action that is always happening, that if you are keeping anger, if you are holding anger, if you are acting out anger towards another individual over and over and over again, then you have already committed murder. And then he talks about a couple of other things that at first seem disconnected, but they speak to this idea of the dignity of human beings. He says, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. The, the word insult there, the original language, he says, whoever cries raka. It's not a word we use a lot. That's why they translate a little bit differently here. But it literally means you are empty headed. You are a um, numbskull. You are, a, you are somebody that is ignorant or an imbecile. It is calling someone that they don't have any sense at all about them. And what he says is, when you do that, in their day and time, in the Jewish language, if you called someone other than their name, you were stripping their humanity from them. So if you called someone a numbskull or empty-headed, you were saying, there is nothing in you that is worth anything. And then the last one he says is, or you cry, you fool. Now we kind of use the word fool like those other words imbecile or empty-headed. That's what people kind of meant, like ignorant. But in their language, the word fool meant you are a heathen or without God. Basically what you're saying is that this person is destined to spend eternity away from God. You are passing judgment on their soul. So think about this. He says, listen, if you're harboring hate towards somebody, someone created in the image of God, you committed murder. If you deface them or pull down their humanity by calling them a name, then you are subject to uh, judgment yourself. And he says, if you look at someone and says, you can't be saved, you must be destined for hell, you have passed judgment on them and judgment will be passed on you. All of this centers around the idea that we must treat every human being with the dignity with which they have been created. C.S. Lewis said this in his most famous message probably called The Weight of Glory. He said, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. And that is a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. He says that when I look at my neighbor, when I look at my friend, when I look at my coworker, when I look at my enemy, when I look at the one that disagrees with me, when I look at my political ally and my political rival, that I must look at them and understand the weight of the dignity of God that is within them, and I make it my responsibility to do all that I can to live in a way that honors that dignity. I grew up in West Tennessee, and uh, one of the events in West Tennessee, so Memphis is our largest city, we're, you know, I mean, 
Tennessee, those of you that are native Tennesseans know this, that very proud about the west, middle, and east sections. Everybody's proud of their own section. I was a West Tennessee boy. Memphis was our largest city. And one of the things that hung over Memphis for still in some ways does was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. A few years ago, I decided to read a book about just to kind of educate myself a little bit more, to kind of figure some things out. And so I read a book about, it was a book really about the search for his killer after the shooting happened. But at the beginning of that, they set the scene for what was happening in Memphis leading up to that. And for whatever reason, my own lack of seeking it out, my own misunderstanding, I never understood fully the situation that was happening there. But in February of that year, a couple of men who were working for the sanitation department in Memphis were killed in an accident with one of the trucks, the garbage trucks. It had happened already before, and almost the entire workforce were African Americans who were not given living wages or any benefits or were not recognized even as full-fledged workers. And so in Memphis, there was a sanitation strike that happened in 1968 when all of those men decided we are not going to work anymore because it's too dangerous. That was a problem for Memphis because you can imagine that if everybody, wherever you live, decided no longer to pick up your trash, trash would begin to pile up. In the wealthy parts, in the impoverished sections, tons and tons of trash began to pile on the streets. They began to march for their rights as human beings to be treated as such in their employment. And the signs that they carried were signs that simply said on them, I am a man. And they would march from the same route almost every day, starting at noon, and they would carry those signs. A couple of years ago, uh, our family went to Memphis, went to Jackson and Memphis and Dyersburg for a a spring break kind of quick trip to some places that our family had never been in Memphis that we had been and Memphis Zoo and some other things. And we went for the first time to the National Civil Rights Museum. And I would highly recommend that if you're around the area to go. It, it, it is built in the hotel where Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. But the history of what was there is just fascinating. They had those signs. They had pictures of that. And I remember reading about that sign again because I'd read about it again. Dr. Moore at the ERLC has written extensively about it, about how it was a wake-up call for him just seeing that sign. And what the basic element of it was was to say, we are men and so are you. We are women and so are you. We're all the same. And what Jesus is telling them, and he will continue this at the end of this part. We'll talk about this a little different frame. But he says that even your enemies... Our men, our women, are human beings created in the image of God. And we must honor the dignity in every human being. Paul said in Acts chapter 17 that we were created by God, one family created by God. And that his creation of us deems us worthy of being the person that we are. I read a story about um, Christian rap artist Lecrae told this story a few years ago that he was in Beverly Hills and was shopping and needed a white T-shirt. 
And he went into one of the stores in Beverly Hills. Um, we've done mission trips in L.A., and as part of a fun day, we went over to Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. And you walk in. I know that sometimes you hear the phrase sticker shock, but it is real in those stores. And Lecrae said he walked up to a white T-shirt, basic white T-shirt, and he turned over the price tag, and it said $640. And he said, that, that can't be right. And so he went over and turned the next one around, his size, $640. So he took it off the shelf, and he walked it to the person and said, what on earth makes this shirt worth $640? Very valid question, Amen. And the person working said, because the designer's name that is on it makes it worth that much. And Lecrae said, in that moment, God said, that's what gives you your value as well, is that my name is on you. And it's not just that he designed and created every human being. It's also that he has paid for us by the death of his son on the cross. And so while it is murder, there's obviously murder that is there. And they're like, well, I don't have to worry about that. But, man, I do get angry sometimes. And I have name called before. Maybe not to their face, but maybe behind their face. Or maybe online in some interaction. Or maybe I've, I've had that feeling that is there. He says the first step for people of my kingdom is that they will honor the dignity in every human being. Then he moves to marriage. Second thing that he's going to, big principle he's going to talk about here is that we need to respect marriage as sacred. Treat marriage as sacred. Now he's going to talk specifically about two subjects, both dealing with marriage, but not both necessarily in marriage. In fact, the first one, the way he uses it, the way he talks about it, does not exclude adultery to something that happens in marriage. It can happen before marriage. Verse 27, he says, You have heard it said also, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me just be real honest up front. I don't have time to unpack all that is here. Okay? I want to give you some principles here. I will tell you that we plan in the fall the idea of who knows what plans are anymore. Do you all realize that plans are... Meaningless anymore. But the plan all along has been for us to tackle 1 Corinthians together as a church. And 1 Corinthians has a lot to say about some of these issues. And in that moment, we will get fully into that. But let me tell you what is affirmed here above everything else. And that is that marriage is a sacred institution of God and ought to be sought to be protected in every way possible. And he talks about it in two ways, adultery and divorce. And here's what's interesting. Can I tell you what's interesting about this from a cultural perspective that they would have heard? Is that in their day and time, men were not held accountable for either of these things. Do you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Do you remember that? Who is drugged before Jesus? The woman. 
You ever thought, where's the man? Like they, they said they caught her and there's no man there. That's because he was considered it wasn't his fault. A man could divorce his wife. He could give her a written thing. Now, it, it usually wasn't this string, but it could be. He literally could say, you burnt the eggs this morning. Sorry. Write it and give it to her and go. She was done. And she was considered to have been the one that caused it. And so the first thing that I find interesting, this isn't even part of the big part is, but it is for us men that it is our responsibility to do everything we can to keep ourselves pure and to keep our marriage on the track that it ought to be. It is responsibility of both parties, not one. Those of you that are married know that it takes both parties working together to make it work, and that's how God intended it. But the reason that Jesus speaks against this is because, or speaks in this way, is because as the Pharisees had developed these laws, they had found multiple ways to let people out of the institution of marriage. And God's plan all along was that marriage was to be a sacred institution that was to reflect His relationship with His people and that we ought to do everything we can to protect it. So He says, you hear adultery is bad, and it is. But so is when you lustfully look after a woman. I don't think he's literally telling people to poke out their eye or chop off their hand, although there have been Christians through history that have because they thought this was literal. I think he's saying take every step possible to make sure that you can keep yourself pure. When it comes to the issue of adultery and sexual infidelity, there has never been a more timely message for that than this time. When access to pornography and television shows and movies is easier than it's ever been that fills people's minds with a culture that is saturated with sexual imagery. Where marriages are treated with just kind of cavalier attitudes. I don't know if you've seen that this this weekend, but there's a video on Facebook. Facebook has videos now, like YouTube or whatever. I mean, we're broadcasting on Facebook. That broke the record for the most views in 24 hours, and it was not one of our worship services. Shocking as that may be. It was Will Smith and Jada Pinkus Smith talking about a time in their lives when they had separated, apparently, and she had an affair. But she keeps calling it an entanglement. And at one point, Will Smith looks at her and says, you said entanglement. What was it? Like, she said it was a relationship. But there was just this cavalier way in which it was talked about. Like, no big deal. It's all, all's good that ends good. And I couldn't help but think of the way, just like in the Pharisees' day, in our day, we just kind of cavalierly think about this subject. The Pharisees were focused on reasons and ways to get out of marriage. Jesus wants to focus on the reality of the importance of marriage. The Pharisees saw the command, or the, the statement in the Old Testament as a command. Jesus saw it as a concession to the heart that sometimes it just has to happen. Pharisees took marriage and divorce lightly. Jesus took it seriously. And the reality is the way the Bible teaches this is that it is the last option that we should have. 
that we should explore every avenue possible before it. And at times, yes, it happens in our world, and there are unfortunate situations where it has to happen in our world, but it is the last option that we have. He talks about the things that lead to that. And he talks about adultery, particularly in this passage. I thought about this week, as I thought about this passage, how close many in our society come right on that edge, and they never realize it, to wrecking something good in their lives. When I was in my Ph.D. studies and my cohort, um, the idea was that there were about ten of us that came together, and we were to stay together, meet together two weeks in the fall, two weeks in the spring, and we would stay together the whole time. After the first semester, one or two dropped out, and so it was down to eight of us. And after the second semester, another dropped out, and it was down to seven of us. And then about the fourth semester, they added someone in who had dropped out of the previous year. And part of what he had to do in order to come into our cohort was explain to us what had happened and ask forgiveness and acceptance into the cohort. Because he, who was a minister, a Ph.D. student in church growth and ministry, had had an affair on his wife. And he said, the best way that I can describe to you what happened to me, he said, it came to me one time while I was watching Bear Grylls. Y'all know who Bear Grylls is? The man versus wild guy. Reminds me of Steve Irwin back in the day, right? Remember Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter would look at him like, this snake is the deadliest snake in all of Australia. If it were to bite me, I would die within five seconds. Look at how beautiful it is. You're like, get out of there, right? For Bear Grylls, he said he was watching him one day, and Bear Grylls is the guy they drop into a survival situation. He shows you how to survive. He makes it to the end. He's doing it with celebrities now, where the celebrities get on there and survive with him. But he said he was watching him one time, and he said Bear Grylls was literally climbing a rock face without any apparent apparatuses. Okay, He's just crawling, climbing a rock face. And he turns to the camera of the guy that's climbing with him. That's the guy I don't want to be. Right? I mean, Bear Grylls is famous. I don't want to be the guy carrying a camera next to him. He turns to the guy carrying the camera and he says, this is extremely treacherous. If I make one false move, I will plummet to my death. Let's go. I would say, no, let's not. Let's leave. But this guy, my cohort said, that that's the way I was watching that, and I thought, I dangled on the edge and then made that one step that I never should have made, and it collapsed my life. Jesus is saying, people that are, that are followers of my kingdom, they are going to value marriage as sacred. Two more, and these will go a little more quickly. The second, third one is, let your word be your bond. Now, that's an old school phrase, but it just means say what you mean and mean what you say. It says in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to your answer, you must not break an oath, but you must keep an oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. These are all ways that they could take an oath. I swear by heaven 
God's throne or I swear by earth because it's footstool. Don't do any of that. He said, don't swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. What he says here is just say what you mean and mean what you say, understanding there are restrictions on what you can promise. By the way, I think it's interesting that he shows the restrictions on what we can promise by talking about the color of our hair. Right? He's basically saying, you can't. If you want to stop gray hair from coming into your head, you can't do it. Now you can go, now you can go get a box and do something about it. But in this day, you can't do anything about it. Like it's going to turn gray. You can't turn it back black. You can't turn it brown. It's going to turn. You're not, the idea is you're not in control of the universe. And so your promises, your oaths are only as good as what you're capable of actually doing. So just say what you mean and mean what you say and leave the rest up to the Lord. One author said, having to swear an oath is a confession of our own dishonesty. Maybe you've had a child that goes, no, 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 I swear, mom, I swear, I swear this time. Well, what about the other times? Right? I really, I really mean it now. He says simply, don't worry about an oath. Just be who you are. Let your character shine through. Let the wholeness be there. Say what you mean and mean what you say. And here's the fourth one. And then we're going to do one more thing and we're done. He says, the people that are in my kingdom are people. They're going to respect the dignity of every human being. They're going to understand the sacredness of marriage. They're going to have their word as their bond. And the last thing is they're going to love as God loves. He does it with two things. First of all, he talks about eye for an eye. You have heard it said in verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, anyone slaps you on your right cheek, that would have been seen as an insult. And so the idea is if you're part of my kingdom and someone insults you for being part of my kingdom, turn the other cheek. And as for the ones to sue you and take away your shirt, let them have your coat. If anyone forces you to go a mile, the military would sometimes force them to walk a mile. Say, I'll go an extra mile. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow. Live generously in other ways. Verse 43. You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven for he causes the sun to rise on the good and evil and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if those, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Tax collectors do that. And if you greet only brothers and sisters, what good are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do that? Verse 48 says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Last thing we see here is, he says, you need to love as God loves. Live generously. If someone asks you for something, be willing to give it. Don't hold tightly to the things of this world. Focus on your mission more than your rights. Allow people to understand that you are willing to give, willing to sacrifice, willing to love. He says in there, there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it's because that will make us like our father. I think about Philippians chapter 2 that talks about God was willing to send his son. John 3.16, that he was willing to give his son. Jesus was willing to go to the cross in Philippians 2. And it distinguishes us from the world. It shows that we're different. When we love our enemies, it's different than everybody else who loves the ones that love them. And the idea behind it is that we love people without limits at all. And so Jesus establishes these four principles. You're going to respect the dignity of human beings. You're going to keep marriage as sacred. 
You're going to let your word be your bond and you're going to love as God loves. And what happens when he gets through with that, my guess is that people are like, there is no possible way that we can do that. We can't be better than the Pharisees. We can't do it in all these ways. And Jesus did this over and over again. He would have these two truths that were side by side that were hard to comprehend. They almost seem like they don't go. And he encapsulates it in verse 48 when he says, Be perfect. Therefore, your heavenly Father is perfect. You be perfect. And so when you come to the end of chapter 5, this is where you find yourselves I can't. No way. Not possible. Not able. I can't follow that standard. And Jesus had this way of bringing to light things from the law, things from God's truth, things from God's life to make us realize that there is no possible way that we could ever love God enough, live our lives devoted enough to get the approval of God. In fact, we come out of this teaching, we come out of says, we are worse than we thought. Of C.S. Lewis, I quote him a lot. Somebody got on to him one time in a writing and said, C.S. Lewis doesn't love the Sermon on the Mount. And he came back and said, who does? It's so hard. And you come out of this with an understanding that nobody is good enough to earn God's favor. And if this is the standard that it takes to be part of the kingdom of heaven, we are doomed. But then the second truth. He teaches as you're right. There is no way you can live up to this. But God loves you anyways. God sent me for you anyways. There is no way you could ever live up to this standard. But I am. And I have. And I died for you. And I rose again. And you can be saved and be part of the kingdom. Not because of your goodness. But because of mine. We talked last week about the fact that the law was supposed to let people know they weren't good enough to measure up to what God wanted. The Pharisees thought they figured out how to measure up. And Jesus comes along and says, boom, no you don't. Because there is no way to measure up. There is no name under heaven by which men can be saved except Jesus. As Christians, what we have to remember is that without the faith and the love and the righteousness and the goodness of God, even after salvation, we could never attain to the people He wants us to be. And that we must daily, with humility, walk in His truth. So the moral of this, the lesson of this part of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Congratulations, you're worse than you thought. And God loves you anyways. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be representatives of your kingdom. And Lord, they are hard standards, but I pray, Lord, that we as a church and as individuals would honor the dignity of every human being. That we would recognize them as people that are worth so much, Lord, because they are created and designed in your image and you have died for their sins. Lord, let us be people that willingly love And willingly sacrifice to show how much we care for others. Lord, I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church that would honor the institution of marriage. That we would 
do everything we can to make sure that it is held high, that it is the foundation of our society. We pray, Lord, that we would be people that would just be truthful, let our integrity shine through. Most of all, Lord, we pray that we would lead with love, that our lives would show the love that you have for us. So, Lord, as we are in this place, as we are gathered here, we pray that we would be ones that would honor your name because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.